summer of 2023 is treating you okay, um, but I want you to pretend it's not the summer of 2023. Imagine it's like the summer of 1986 and the internet didn't tangibly exist yet and movies were allowed to be just as crazy as they wanted to be. We're going to talk about retro crazy cinema and with returning guest, Mr. Matthew Risley. So, uh, it's a quality episode. I hope your ears are ready for it. As always, I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. This is Rankin Review. We drop every other Wednesday. Check out the website at rankinreview.ca and feel free to send any feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to Rankin Review. If you were to mention this show to the other cinema crazy in your life, uh, I would be grateful, and I'm hoping they would be grateful. So go ahead and do that, and uh, let's get into Retro Crazy. We have the always welcome Mr. Matthew Risling back on the show to talk with me about some retro horrors. Most of the movies we're going to be talking about are from the 80s. And um, just for me to start out, I'm going to say some good things about these movies. I'm going to say some bad things about these movies. But overall, I'm going to say for the most part, they have much more personality than like any five modern movies. That's, that's what I was thinking when I was watching them. They like it, It'd be hard to fully recommend any of these movies, um, certainly to somebody who is critical of movies, because a lot of them are low-budget and weird, but they nearly all, I think, have an original vision, and were pursuing that vision in the best way that they could. How successful they were, we will discuss on a case-by-case basis. But yes, I, I miss the personal touch. I miss this feeling like they were unsupervised while they were making the movie. Like, I miss the... Just uh, embracing the madness. Like, <laughs> if you you know you're, you're looking at the dailies and you're like, yeah, this movie's out of the out of its mind. Let's let's maybe lean into that. Like, yeah. And that a lot of these played in movie theaters. You know, they're like, there are some nostalgic presents to me that I just remember seeing when I was too young when they were forbidden. And so I liked them because of their forbidden nature. And then you revisit them as an adult and you're like, yeah, well, <laughs> there are peaks and there are valleys. Um, 
So, I think almost all of these, or maybe a good half of them, if they came to the second run cinema near me, I would probably check it out. Right. <laughs> and um, there are culty movies in here, but for the most part, I would say they're unsung. They're not the first thing that comes to mind. People don't jump to Motel Hell or Blood Diner, you know. <laughs> They're not exactly lost movies, but they're they're headed in that direction. They're for the very sort of <laughs> particular t- horror movie tastes, and um, a, a lot of these are the kind of movies that show up in like books about like weird eighties cult cinema. Like a lot of these are the movies that influence the movies that people think about when they think about crazy 80s like uh, I mean we'll get to it's brain damage but Frank Henelotter he's had a lot of impact um, you know um, Ken Russell Layer of the White Worm which I think is the first one we're going to talk about it yeah. shows up in a lot of books but it's not one that people really talk about a lot and I do think there are certain movies and they're hard to identify when they're happening because we're living through them, but that are just of their time and place that are just meant to have been that forbidden horror movie rental that you got at a video store in 1987. And the farther away you get from that place, the less value the film seems to carry anymore. <laughs> but... I don't know. I have an affection for that time, obviously, when I didn't have access to every movie ever made, basically, at my fingertips, within reason, and uh, there were things that were somehow forbidden, and where movies were just crazier somehow. Like, not that they're all, like, foaming at the mouth, but most of these movies are kind of out there, and, like, you just wouldn't see them today. You wouldn't... There would be somebody on set saying, whoa, whoa, dial this way the shit back. Or yeah, like... Saying, you know, it's been seven minutes since our last jump scare. So like, let's let's swell the music and then have a jump scare. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what, Annabelle movies or The Nun or that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, just keep shaking the keys for the kids. Uh, but don't have anything like original to say like i said i don't love all of these movies but in a way i have affection for all of these movies so i'm going in a little bit uh a little bit gloves off i guess or or gloves on i guess i should say i'm i'm gonna treat these guys a little bit kinder than maybe in some cases they deserve and i'm gonna prepare you and our listeners for that um i i don't know there's some guilty pleasure to this list to me yeah, I, for me, this was this definitely not the best list that I've watched in terms of quality of the movies, but it was one of the more interesting, uh, more interesting lists. Um, I had fun with, I had fun watching most, most of, of them. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, is there anything you would like to say by way of introduction before I list off these movies and we get underway, sir? No, let's just let's get to it. Let's get this over with. All right. From director Ken Russell, we have The Layer of the White Worm. We have the sequel to the surprise hit Willard, Ben, uh, about a bunch of evil, angry rats. We have the 80s cult item Blood Diner. We have another 80s cult item called Motel Hell. We have the Frank uh, Henenlotter film you were talking about, Brain Damage. 
And we're going to finish with something completely different <laughs> called <laughs> Sister, Sister, directed by Bill Condon, who went on to do legitimate Oscar bait and uh, I think some of the Twilight movies. But uh, this was like his sort of first getting his feet wet in the industry type of thing. But we'll get to Sister, Sister. Yes. <laughs> It'll be a palate cleanser, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> let's do this, brother. All right, let's get it over with. Mom! Something's been found in Stone Rig Cavern. Legend has it that Stone Rig Cavern was the lair of the Dampton Worm. My God. When the venom attacks the nervous system, the victim appears to be afflicted by a form of vampirism. I hear you're having trouble with a snake. Ah, and you're going to uphold family tradition and slay the beastie. Are you out of your mind? My, you are a fine. Here's to the first swallow. <laughs> so I think it says a lot about the list of movies that this Ken Russell picture called The Lair of the White Worm is not the most fucked up movie that we're going to be talking about. It's not not the one with the most gratuitous nudity, weirdly enough. Yeah. Uh, although its nudity is gratuitous. <laughs> well, I mean, there are certain things that we have to expect from Ken Russell. There's gratuity, and there's sacrilegious imagery, and there's a weird sort of slapdash approach to the editing and the storytelling. There's there's something strangely unhinged about a Ken Russell joint. You and I have actually talked about him before. With yeah, uh, gothic. gothic, exactly. A very different number, but this is based on, and we can put hard quotation marks around based on, a story by Bram Stoker that um, apparently uh, Ken Russell himself couldn't even explain finer details of when asked about it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and we should also say, if we're, we're going to mention the Bram Stoker um, work, it's universally considered Bram Stoker's worst published work uh people that like bram stoker don't like um is it also called layer of the white worm no i'm not sure of the original text i don't know the only thing i've read from bram stoker like everyone else i guess is dracula (laughs) (laughs) i apologize i guess i fail as an english major um we have amanda donahoe is sort of the main character in this movie and not to bury the lead entirely, but she wears the smallest underwear I think I've ever seen in film <laughs> in this movie. Um, and I guess to like jump right to it, it, it's sort of about a snake cult of snake-worshipping snake people <laughs> in this small British town. And um, we have early performances from Hugh Grant and uh, my kids preferred Doctor Who, um, Oh my God, Peter Capaldi, um, who is this gentleman who finds a very strange, very obviously not dinosaur skull 
in his land and in his investigation as to what this is, draws himself. Yeah, it's, it's not his land, right? He's right. bordered a house uh, and he's doing like an archaeological dig. Right. He is an archaeologist, but this is an unusual find. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in the investigation gets him wrapped up in this cult and with this uh, rich Hugh Grant character. It's interesting how Hugh Grant seemed to arrive pretty much fully formed. This is early Hugh Grant, and yet it's everything you could ever expect from a Hugh Grant performance. Incomplete with the yes, but mm, yes, very. Mm, but. Yeah, uh, very aristocratic. Um, he said in an interview that, or maybe several interviews, that he's embarrassed by this movie, which I think, you know, going over his corpus, this is not the worst movie he's done. It's a lot better than some of those 90s rom-coms that were absolutely uh, forgettable. Like, I, I think this is a better movie than Not a Kill. It's no nine months, or uh, did you hear about the Morgans? Like, yeah, let's let's be real, dude. Plus, at this point in his career, he was probably happy to have a job at all, let alone with this cult filmmaker. Well, yeah, I think the son of Cary Grant was always going to get opportunities. Right. Um, but, you know, like, I think it was not a bad first movie. Right. Well, and it's not necessarily the cast, although it's interesting that they're sort of not fully formed yet for the most part. Uh, there's a lot of familiar British actor faces to be seen in the film. But it's not really that or the story that, that makes the movie interesting or watchable. It is the sort of eccentric, bizarre, like hallucinogenic religious imageries, which seemed like it could have been ripped right out of altered states. Um, and yeah, I guess the gratuity, like the gratuitous nature of the cult and how they go about their business and the seductions and people being bit on the willy. Uh, <laughs> it, it has that quality to it. So yeah, I think it's the, those things. It's the hallucinogenic shit. It's the weird Ken Russell uh, additions and excessiveness that I find interesting about the movie. And when those things aren't happening, I find myself increasingly impatient for them to continue happening. So that's that's what's working and not working for me. But at no point was I bored by the movie. It does have a strangely hypnotic quality to it as well. So uh, I remember feeling similarly frustrated with Gothic in that like there's so much interesting to this and yet the movie is broken somehow fundamentally. So Yeah, I mean, it... So... Ken Russell says that this was meant to be a horror comedy, and I think it's more like a horror ironity. Like there's there's irony in it. Um, you know, he talks about this final scene where where you know this giant worm coming out of the ground and the love interest is dangling above it. You know, with her hands in shackles, and Amanda Donahoe has is basically wearing nothing except for this Thanks. giant this giant snake strap on and he you know ken russell talks about like what were the critics not seeing this is obviously a comedy but you know even with that in mind with my understanding that he says it was a comedy there's no funny bits in it there's odd bits and there's sort of silly bits like the you know uh, so you know we learn amanda donahoe is the head of this snake cult, but she's also kind of like a snake vampire. And so when she hears music, it's like she's being charmed by a snake charmer. Her body moves in a, in a you know, certain rhythmic way. Um, and it's, 
I don't think it was entirely serious, but it's not like funny, funny. It's its own weird tone. Well, and I feel like the quote scary stuff plays more absurd. So if it's a horror comedy, they missed both the comedy and the scary parts. <laughs> Although one of my one of my notes was that um, there is some sort of surprisingly good tension. I mean, I've seen this movie a lot. This is a movie I used to like renting when I was young because there's so many boobies in it. And right. as you said, Amanda Donahoe is wearing the, this smallest underwear that you know is available on the market. Like somebody watched Alien and said, "Okay, Ripley, we can do better." <laughs> yes. <laughs> But there, you know, in spite of that, and in spite of the fact that I knew what was going to happen, you know, when the when the Scottish guy is in the castle for the confrontation and he's brought his bagpipes, in, that scene was a bit silly, especially because he's wearing the full tartan and everything. <laughs> really, why bother? Um, but you know, you know that she's in the house. Uh, you know that there are bad things about, and I thought they handled the suspense relatively well. Uh, again, that scene was better for me than, than like a swelling music jump scare scene. Or there was the scene where Hugh Grant, he was, when they first learned that music would attract these snake vampires, he set up these giant speakers on the, the roof of his manor. Uh, and I guess our, the love interest's mother, who everybody had thought was dead up to this point, but really was a vampire, she gets into his house, is about to kill him, um, and he cuts her in half. With that's a sword. great shot. That's that's it's, like out of Evil Dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great shot. Um, I hadn't thought of it, but it is very Evil Dead. But then we, like, the scene goes on a little bit too long. You think, okay, if this was it, it would have ended by now. And the last scene is like this sort of half of the snake woman crawling towards him, and then there's a pretty hard cut. And, you know, like, I liked the character. At that point, I was kind of concerned about what would happen to him. So, like, there are moments where it actually functions like a horror movie, or at least a suspense movie. Well, and I, I think it's just the scale and the stakes of the evil snake people, but we start out not really liking the Hugh Grant character, but he does prove to be helpful, and, like, you know, <laughs> he, he, he proves his character, and again, I guess I'll give the movie points for that. A lot of base monster movies don't even manage that kind of an arc for a character, but it again, I the things that jump to my mind when I think about the movie is, like, her spitting venom on the crucifix on the wall. Like, that's a bizarre detail. Like, not since when I watched this Rawhead Rex movie and this demon literally urinated on a priest did I see something so, like, joyfully balls-out sacrilegious in a movie. Well, and then it gets worse than that because when that one woman touches the venom on, she notices that there's liquid on it sometime later and she touches it and then she has this hallucination where all of these nuns are being raped. violently raped by Roman legionnaires and there's, like, psychedelic music and, like, purple psychedelic colors going on. Hilarious, is, Ken Russell. Hilarious. A little bit over-directed there. Maybe. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, at least he, he's not hedging his opinions of the church and of religion. I mean, he's he's putting it out there. Well, and this is also from the director of Tommy, right? Like, like he, he's got some psychedelic shit in him. And, like, 
uh, pushing the, at the time, some pretty cool special effects in 1980 with altered states. I think like he was trying to experiment and dabble with that here as well. But yeah, I agree. Maybe at times got a little distracted by it. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, <laughs> much at times a bit overdirected at times. Uh, but clearly he made the movie that he wanted to make. I mean, he still speaks pretty fondly of it well that's sort of ken russell's thing love or hate the movies they're definitely distinctly his like um i I don't know like you would necessarily spot it right away but i think if you're watching a ken russell film there'll be sooner or later a scene will give itself away where you're like oh okay this is ken russell all right all right (laughs) and that doesn't necessarily make me relax or make me think okay now now i feel safe now i know i'm in good hands but I at least sort of understand the language that he's... He's a little bit more experimental and arty-farty than I typically go for. But when he works, he works. Um, and again, I don't think this movie's going to convert anybody. <laughs> but I do think it's an interesting curio. Like, A, for how fucked up it is. And just, like, early performances from this cast. And really, really small underwear. Sorry, I keep going back to that. but You know... It almost had another baby future uh, superstar. Uh, the the script for the Amanda Donahoe's character was originally offered to Tilda Swinton. Really? Who read the script and decided that she didn't want to do that. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, I think Tilda Swinton only gets to do a movie if she gets to play two or three parts in the movie nowadays. It's like she's <laughs> a little bit greedy to... <laughs> But I don't know, that would have also been interesting. But uh, I don't know, Amanda Donahoe definitely brings something other than just her willingness to, to show flesh to the film. Like, she does play a character. And yes, the last third of the movie, she's basically in blue paint. And uh, that that takes some personal courage for a performer. I mean, one of the things about her performance that I really noticed, I mean... You know, you, you mentioned Hugh Grant is kind of Hugh Grant. Um, he He's a bit checked out in some parts, which I thought actually worked with the character because he was a, a Luke Noble. Uh, I, it really seemed to me like it, Amanda Donahoe wanted to be there. Like she was she was putting everything into the movie. And, you know, again, it's silly at parts, but moving around like a charmed snake in, in what would be like like a theater school exercise she was just given it and it's really the second you get self-conscious on the camera like it all falls apart the more ludicrous a thing you're asked to do the more difficult in a weird way forget you know the 30 crew members that are all huddled around you (laughs) so no i mean it's distinct it's definitely its own thing there's not another movie like layer of the white worm where it fits on the list like a lot of the movies we're going to discuss is a harder thing to discuss. This is just a list of how did you personally feel about the film on the day? Because there's, there's, there's a lot that you can say good or bad about a lot of these films. Agreed. There's also a weird choice that they made. Um, we mentioned at the beginning that it was based on, loosely based on the Bram Stoker novel. It's also based on a um, British legend of the Lampton Worm, uh, which is... A, okay. Uh, I had a picture book of it when I was a kid, which is one of, another one of the reasons why I really liked this movie because it was like this obscure thing from my childhood that I kind of remembered. But they changed the name from 
the the original myth, mythological Lampton worm to the Dampton worm in this for reasons that seems utterly bizarre. Like I, I don't think they're going to get sued by the Lampton family. Uh, you know, what would be the point? Um, and spoiler, when we actually get to the physical worm, because there is one, the worm does kind of look like maybe a little bit silly, like it could have been pulled out of the Labyrinth movie or something like that. But at the same time, it doesn't not work in the movie somehow, too. Like, it's not great, and yet it sort of fits with the rest of the not great, fully formed vibe of the movie. I don't know. It's tough to explain. But there's a puppet snake at the at the end of the movie, and it doesn't wreck things. So. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about Layer of the White Worm, brother? Um, no, not really. I mean, I actually could talk about it for a long time, but I think... I we got think, five other movies. <laughs> yeah, we got to keep going. Um, yeah, I, I found it a charming watch. I, I really didn't feel like my time was being wasted. Yeah, Ken Russell yet again proves he was, if nothing else, original. <laughs> Maybe he was Ben. That's the name of the leader of the rats. There were some pages from Willard's diary in the newspapers. <laughs> Killed three people. All residents go in and stay in your houses. Drive the rats in the tank area. Ah! They're eating us alive down there. There's millions of them. And they're coming for you. They're coming. They're gonna burn you, Ben. And then they're gonna drown you. Run, Ben. Run, please. Ben. And his army of rats are on the way. So 1972 comes Ben. This is a sequel to Willard. Where Willard ended, Ben begins. But this time, he's not alone, says the cover of my, my Blu-ray. Uh, <laughs> this was a really quick turnaround for a sequel. Yeah. It came out the next year. Although they did keep the same writer, um, it's weird because I have the remake of Willard, but getting your hands on the original Willard is not really an easy feat, so I'm actually more familiar with the remake of the original film. It's with Crispin Glover, right? That's right. Uh, this movie I mainly know because it was, I believe, Michael Jackson's first solo number one hit. At the tender age of 14, he sang the title track to Ben. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're getting ahead of it. This was my, my last note, because it's not until, like, the, the movie ends, and then there's this song called A Friend Like Ben, which doesn't fit the tone of a horror movie, and, and it was, it, like... I heard Michael Jackson's voice, and and it really blew my mind. (laughs) This is not a movie with star power behind it, and it was just a weird, uh, I don't know, weird non-sequitur. But from the the prepubescent song of a troubled child to the story of a troubled child in Ben, um, this kid is creepy. 
This kid is fucking creepy. The main character of the story who's got some kind of not really well-defined heart condition, which he's yeah, had... Yeah, well, he's had heart surgery because he's got that big scar down his chest. Yeah, he's had several operations. There's more coming. There's a possibility he's going to die. He spends most of his time singing to himself and playing with these creepy clown and rat puppets. And, uh... And he's got this smile, which I know is meant to be charming, that he always does to himself or whenever Ben shows up, but he really was giving me chills. He really, like, I don't like to pick on a child actor. I don't even think that he's a bad child actor, but I think a lot of the stuff that they're doing that's supposed to be sweet and charming is actually coming off as, like, troubled and creepy, which yeah. should which should work for the movie, but... Uh, this this dissonance between the friendship which develops between Ben and this kid who has presumably got the same psychic gift that uh, the previous protagonist had and his ability to just... The, the rat understands English when the kid says it to him somehow. And he seems to understand rat when Ben's around the room. And the more comfortable they get around each other, the more there's more rats around. It's more like they have an empathic connection. Like, I don't think they really understand... Like, I don't think the rat understands his words. I don't think he hears what the rat is saying, but I think they're, they're, they have a connection that it's kind of paranormal. Right. Not quite E.T., but maybe in <laughs> some sort of neighborhood of... <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the relationship that people think they have with their cats, but they really don't. The problem with the movie, other than it being obviously a cheap cash grab, <laughs> and like the the B plot is the police trying to find and eradicate this horde of killer rats in the sewers, and uh, this kid's journey between protecting the rats and you know protecting the other humans in his neighborhood. Uh, neither end of that kind of spectrum really is working. <laughs> like, I, I'm not that interested in the rat attacks because they're not that convincing. And the sweet bonding between this kid and the rat is more creepy than it is charming. Like, the stuff that's supposed to be scary is funny and charming. And the stuff that's supposed to be funny and charming is kind of scary. <laughs> and in a weird backwards way, it makes for an interesting experience. But mainly, it's kind of walking through muddy water for me. Uh, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a movie with rats in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a few notes. Some... some things that I want to respond to that you mentioned um, the creepy marionettes yeah. uh, one of my early notes is when he's putting on those performances for himself and singing his little songs I kind of found those impressive in a way I actually liked watching him do the puppetry and the, the, the songs they're childish like nursery rhyme type songs but I found them a little bit catchy or at least they, it created a mood and what that mood was, I mean, I think you hit it on the head. It meant to be sweet, but it comes off as kind of creepy, but that worked for me. Um, and the parts, the parts of the movie that worked for me the most were early on when they were setting things up because the payoff wasn't all that great of a payoff. But I, there, for the first like 30 minutes or so, I felt like there was a mood developing. Um, I was going to ask you about what you thought about the kids' uh, performance because I know you don't tend to like movies that star little kids um i kind of liked his performance to be honest well i in horror movies little kids will often hurt the stakes for me i just i'm never scared for them like even like most horror movies you kind of understand who your protagonist is and you know they're going to make it to the third act but especially with a little kid 
it, it kind of like it, it disarms the movie a little bit for me. In it, there are exceptions. <coughs> Excuse me. There are exceptions. I like I said. I don't think the kid's a bad actor. I think there's something weird in the presentation. Well, it's all seventies acting because like his sister's acting was weird. His mom's acting was weird. It's it's the kind of like a worse version of the seventies acting of something like The Exorcist. Did you recognize not... his sister? No, who's his sister? It's the mom from Family Ties. What really? <laughs> Meredith Baxter. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> She's just little in that movie, but uh, fun fact. And, like, you know what's really making me feel old? The amount of people who have no fucking idea what we're talking about right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> we went off the air 35 years ago or something. But when I was a kid, Family Ties was huge somehow, right? I mean, it was no Cosby show, but anyway. I digress. Um, the rat attacks. It, it's interesting how they're, they reminded me of... I think there was a lot of these disaster animal movies, again, especially after Jaws happened, killer bees, killer bears, killer frogs, but they had a hard time showing us how the animals were accomplishing this. So sometimes... There was that movie called Frogs, that even when I was going through my horror movie phase, I could just... There were some scenes that I couldn't take seriously. Where just like this turtle that would, was slowly approaching with ominous music, and then the camera just pans up, and there's a scream. And like, no, you're gonna need to explain. But like, rats aren't fully that way. Rats can be vicious. Rats can be aggressive, and they can have a creepy quality to them. And uh, I can be icked out by a rat. I can be surprised by a rat. But I was surprised how little that happened. The the sort of scenario seemed to be like they didn't see the rats, they didn't see the rats, then they turned a corner and there were rats everywhere and they would show them laying on the ground with rats on them and the actors would sort of squirm and sort of scream but not so much as to damage any of the rats and like it just, <laughs> it like, like frogs or like bees, like the actors are laying on the ground with frogs on them and like ah, 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 ah and the music's trying and the cinematography is trying but I'm like no, I, I do not believe this. I do not believe this. I can't imagine how horrifying it would be to be eaten alive by thousands of rats, and neither can anybody on this set. <laughs> yeah, and it also didn't help that sometimes the rats were extremely lethal, and, you know, the moment you got swarmed, you're done for, and sometimes the rats aren't all that lethal, and if you get swarmed, you can crawl out of the sewers or whatever and, and brush them off. Uh, like you're brushing fire off of your jeans or something. Was that you or me? Oh, that's me. Sorry, I'm... Oh, oh my god, I just got this text that says uh, I'm invited to join the cryptocurrency internal discussion group. Oh, maybe we should record later. That sounds important. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about Ben, goddammit. <laughs> Sorry, I can't go to the moon. I've got I've to gotta talk about this rat moving. <laughs> Uh, which is also another uh, WTF moment that I kind of like the Michael Jackson and there's nowhere that it fits in naturally but it's the movie is Bing Crosby Productions that was the first title card uh, so it's sort of a weird not what you would expect from the guy who's famous for his Christian or Christmas um, specials right well I mean people end up in strange places in the uh, later stages of their career as I believe we will discuss later on in the in the episode. I did want to talk about some of the rat effects that did kind of work in a backwards way for me. 
There's scenes where they were trying to show the vast number of the rats in a sort of safe way, where they're using really early form animation, where I believe they're layering another a separate shot of the rats and sort of using rotoscope animation. Yeah, it reminded me a little of the Bakshi Lord of the Rings in places. Yeah, and but they were overlaying the shots on top of each other, so you have a little bit of animation and a little bit of the actual shot, both of them looking strange because they're double exposed, I think. It's a really early retro effect, but I kind of found it charming. I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's sort of like when I was talking about the puppet worm it, layer of the white worm. It, it it did not in any way convince me, but I, I enjoyed watching the effect. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it, it wasn't bad. Like, a lot of those rat attacks, it seemed like people were being swarmed by, you know, stuffed animals or merkins or whatever. Like, they just really seemed like rats. Um, there was some cheesy rotoscope effects, but it didn't really boot me out of the movie. Again, it's like a 1972 low-budget, um, I don't know what you, it's not exactly a slasher movie, whatever it was. I, I didn't really fault it for that. No. I, and I, I kind of laughed sometimes at the movie, sometimes with the movie, at the cringy cop dialogue and, the, you know, smoke them if you got them. Uh, we just watched a third of our, our police force get eaten by rats and we just killed all of these rats and the whole place is burning and it probably smells awful, but they're all smiling and lighting each other's smokes and looking each other in the eye like they really... <laughs> They really did something here, <laughs> and it wasn't uh, it wasn't the same actor because I looked it up. But that one reporter that hung out with the cops looked so much like Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka at the Chocolate Factory. I just couldn't not see Grandpa Joe. I don't know what more to say about Ben. I mean, it is again very much an artifact of 1972. I'm not sure what kind of weight or relevance it carries anymore. Um, it's easier to get your hands on than Willard for some reason which is strange but i believe i bought this at a drugstore for 3.99 so not a bad price for it um i i liked like i said i liked the first 30 minutes i was kind of bought in i did like the scene at the end where the guys with flamethrowers were storming the um sewers and burning up the rats um Although those scenes were slightly confusing because the way that they were spliced together, you never really got a sense of how many people were in the sewers, how many rats. It would be like cut to one tunnel, cut to the other tunnel, and they kept reusing the same footage. So for a long, like for, you know, large chunks of that, you just see hundreds of rats getting burned up. And then every now and then you would see the same footage of rats starting to jump on these people. Uh, and, you know, in the radio, it says something like, we're getting eaten alive here. But mostly, you just saw people with flamethrowers killing thousands upon thousands of rats. And the, the stakes weren't entirely clear to me. And then, and then the hero cop went into the, sub, or the sewer and started shooting rats with his pistol or something. And then he climbed out, and it was as though he had single-handedly solved the rat problem. Um, <laughs> I, I liked the scale of that confrontation quite a lot, but for me it was confusing to watch. I wasn't sure whether I was watching a victory or a defeat. Yeah. Well, the other thing is this movie did way less well than the original, 
and uh, originally they, they, they wanted this to be a trilogy, and this was going to be the uncomfortable middle child, which is why the movie doesn't really have an ending. A lot of the rats are killed, but Ben lives, and the little kid still is, you know, communicating with him, and he'll be able to rebuild his legion of rat monster, <laughs> whatever, um, and... The idea was they're going to up the amount of rats. In the first movie, it was basically a house infested with rats. And in this movie, it's the the sewers. And the next one was going to be the whole city, right? But that movie never got made. So it was an early, uh, an early account of, you know, setting up a movie that was never made. Something that happens irritatingly often these days. Yeah, it makes sense because there's that final scene where... Okay, first of all, when Ben comes to the kid's room and he's all hurt, was did they really hurt a rat for that? He, his fur looked like it was really matted with blood. Uh, and I guess these were the days where I wouldn't put it past them either way, but it was sort of upsetting for me. 1972, uh, I don't know who was going to be looking after the rats on set, um, but it didn't look like the, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Is the honest answer is that I don't know, Matt. I wouldn't be surprised either way. How about that? Yeah. Um, And like I said, like I was jarred by the quick cut. So, you know, Ben, the main bad guy or the main rat is injured. The boy has got a Q-tip with iodine. He's kind of cleaning out his wounds. He says, I won't let you die, Ben. And it's not convincing if Ben's going to live or die, just like we don't know if the kid's going to live or die. And then you could, I could imagine a hard cut to some some real impactful musical sting, but that's where the the gentle tones of Michael Jackson, a prepubescent Michael Jackson, yeah. singing something about wanting to have a friend like Ben. I'm like, what, what, what am I supposed to feel here? What emotion have you created in me? Uh, one of the benefits of being a collector of DVDs. In the uh, Willard remake with Crispin Glover, there's a video directed by Crispin Glover of Crispin Glover singing Ben. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's, there's, there's that. I've run out of things to say about this movie. <laughs> well, I've got at least one other, which is this had some really impressive moments of 1970 sexism. Oh, yes. Um, uh, there were so many eek a mouse girls. You know, the rats, I can't even remember where they went. They went, they were like nurses or something, uh, and they were all clocking out, and then the rats came. And the only point of that scene, I think, was so that all of the girls could run around shrieking. And it wasn't even like lustful or anything, it wasn't like a way to get them to take their tops off. I think the, the comment that the movie was making is that girls are scared of mice. Look how useless these women are in the face of this rat plague. Yeah. <laughs> well, we learned something. The 1970s hadn't had that shit figured out yet. <laughs> Let's move on. Ah, hello, fellow food lovers. I'm Phil Mignon, world-famous gourmet. In my travels, I've sampled some of the most exquisite foods the world has to offer. And that's why they've asked me to tell you all about a charming new eatery located right downtown. As um, you can see, the atmosphere is lovely. But, of course, the... The finest attribute of this quaint cafe is the marvelous cuisine. A 
give my right arm for that secret recipe. Ah! Uh, yes, the chef puts a bit of himself into every succulent dish. Oh, and he's always pleased to serve you to your friends. Uh, sh shouldn't that be serve you and your friends? 1987 Blood Diner. It is directed by Jackie Kong. Um, she made four films throughout the 80s. Apparently, they're all very crazy, but this is this is the prize winner. This is the gold standard. And this is where I have to start with Blood Diner. It is unapologetically out of its fucking mind. Like, it knows that it's crazy. It's telling you that it's crazy. It's telling you to, that you... It's going to be incredibly violent, but you can't really take any of that at face value. And it literally starts with a disclaimer telling you that you're about to watch something really violent, not meant for kids, that is just crazy and just take the ride. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that that disclaimer um, was a little bit sarcastic because also 1987 is the height of what has come to be known as the satanic panic and yep. the, the disclaimer talked about uh, you know this is movies got occult rituals and stuff and it was just like everything that parents during the 1980s were, were terrified that movies would subject their innocent children to yeah. And then the very first scene after that is innocent children being subjected to violence and occult <laughs> Well, their uncle shows up. Apparently, according to the radio, he's been running around town with a butcher knife in one hand and his genitals in the other. That's, yeah, and that... he talks a lot about having his genitals cut off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's lots of weird themes in this. There's lots of weird Hitler imagery in the movie. There's lots of uh, sort of that flock of seagulls, like, blue-lit 80s vibe to the movie. There's, like absurdity to the movie we have a sequence where a guy gets his hands cut off and then tries to drive a car there's a a naked woman having a karate fight there's a character that appears to be just a mannequin but that everybody treats like a character and at no point at any point does the movie ask any questions of the audience or does it help the audience along we're loosely following these two brothers who are trying to bring this ritual about and they have all these weird ingredients they have to get, usually body parts from virgins. And, uh, yeah, they only needed the one virgin. Mostly they got body parts from uh, Sinful women. people, that's right. Um, and they extract the brain out of the corpse of their uncle, and it's a living brain in a jar with eyes that talks to them and, and helps them prepare for this grand ritual, which is going to be the third act of the movie. And... To the movie's credit, it does somehow keep fucking topping itself on how insane it is. And I have the, like, the loosest memory of it. As a little kid watching it and being troubled and disturbed by the weird vagina mouth on this the creature at the end of the movie, and the scene where a guy's head got squished by a car, those are the two images that I had stuck in my brain. But for the longest time, you could only get this movie on VHS. And when it was finally released on DVD, it was only available in a package, like with a bunch of other movies. But they were at least good enough to release it completely unedited. So, how would you edit this? In what way could you make this a friendly for television? 
It feels like a lost relic to me, and it did finally get its prestige release from Scream Factory, so the horror fans can get a, you know, $40, $35 version of it if they want. Um, I don't know how much money you want to spend on Blood Diner, but I am going to say the movie is so fucked up, it deserves to be experienced. If this sounds like something that would ring your bell, I'm going to say give it a chance. It's less than an hour and a half long, and it is completely insane. But I don't know. Am I crazy, Matt? There's there's something about it. There's something here. Yeah, I, so I think I might have liked this movie a little bit less than you. Okay. I, I I do. Again, this is this is exactly the movie that Jackie Kong wanted to make, <laughs> and God love her for making it. Um, to me. I, there were lots of things like everything happens so abruptly and I liked the abruptness of it so like that scene that you were talking about with somebody's head getting crushed these brothers are trying to get into a club and then the bouncer doesn't want to let them in so they push him down and then a car obliterates him and, and nobody says anything nobody in the line <laughs> seems that upset I mean it's just like okay well, I guess this is the world that this is taking place in it gets them into the club <laughs> Um, I will say, I think the movie thinks that it's funnier than it is. I think for me, a lot of the humor wasn't—it wasn't that funny. Like there, there was there was no—I don't know how to say it. There was no wit to it. Um, so like, you can have really violent, grotesque, um, jarring scenes. It felt to me, and I kept checking to see if it was a trauma release because it seems like a trauma movie, but like a, just a, a step lower than trauma it was like tromeo and juliet but without the charisma i don't it's interesting you say trauma because i've always had a problem with the trauma vibe of look how bad we are look how stupid we are huh huh this movie is bad and it does kind of know it but it's never winking at us. It's never like letting, showing us its cards or letting us in on the joke. It's just being its own thing. Like typically, this is not the type of movie I I I, I go for. My kind of bad movie is a movie that doesn't know it's bad, and it's just kind of hilariously bad because of that. But I don't know. This movie just walks a fine line. It's it's so weird. Like you genuinely do not know what you're gonna see in the next scene. Ever. And it's stylistically all over the place. The, the dubbing in the movie is frustrating and weird. It yeah, feels like an Italian movie at times, but it is not. And I couldn't tell if they were trying to do it like that, because it's like an American production. It's an yeah. American filmmaker. But at but times... It's kind of a, like a Jallo vibe to it, or at least the, to the sound design. Definitely the feel the influence of Jallo, and I... I thought i mean i don't know this but i thought especially with the cop angles and stuff they were actually trying to go for it with the weirdly consciously bad dubbing and strange accents because if this was being made in italy or in, in some middle european country they would do that they would shoot it like with actors who would just speak the lines phonetically and then badly dub the language in but that was not the case here that was a choice that they made and the the one cop the male cop he was also, he had this, like, this retro 70s Italian look. And this is from 1987, so it's before they were doing 70s retro. Like, yeah. that would have been, it basically would have been somebody who was two, se two seasons out of fashion or something. You know what I mean? Like, 
so I, I couldn't tell if she was trying to make it like a 70s Italian um, slasher movie or whatever. Not, not even a slasher movie. I'm not sure what you'd call it, a gore fest. But even if she was, she was only doing it for those few scenes. Because then we would snap back to a different scene and it would be a completely different movie. And yeah. so you'll either be fascinated by like, what are they going for here, if anything, or... Why is this naked woman doing karate all of a sudden? Like, I, I feel, what? <laughs> what about the topless cheerleaders? So, okay, two things, uh, just because you brought them up. Thank uh, you, yes. The, the first one was uh, naked aerobics. Yes. Uh, five stars out of five would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> it just came out of, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, because they were talking about doing aerobics. Um, but it was just so abrupt like yeah. the scene just cuts um but i think like in some ways this is the most sexually exploitive movie on the uh, list but it's also the one with the woman director and i was wondering if maybe she was playing with that as well which is why that completely naked woman um who gets assaulted by the the sort of physically stronger of the brothers that she ends up kicking his ass with karate and you know Kong is sort of flipping these, this on us, which it's not the first time we've seen that in cinema, but it, for, a, for a gore fest from 1987, it was certainly unexpected. Well, definitely. And I think unexpected is what this movie has going for it. In any given scene, there's going to be something that will make you go, what? <laughs> a woman gets her head deep fried, and then she's running around the room and her head looks like a big round deep fried chicken ball. <laughs> yeah, and actually I had a note for that one. That was one of the the, the moments where I thought the, the movie's attempts at comedy kind of stepped on its own toes because this one brother is seducing this woman in the diner and he's having this like sexy nine and a half week scene but he's pouring batter all over her and then he dunks her head in a deep fryer and it was just so grisly like it was such a sickening idea that I don't think she needed to pop back up with her donut head uh, running around I think they could have just left that as like a gruesome uh, you know indulgent kill Nobody could have predicted that. Nobody could have predicted that the guy who was jealous of the, the restaurant would try and break in and steal their uncle's brain and, and, and steal their recipe the whole time. I don't know. He was... They, they kept on showing his lips moving like he was making the mannequin talk, but... Yeah, he was supposed to be making the mannequin talk. But everybody else was just treating the mannequin normally. So. They, were, like, they were talking to the mannequin. They were, like, their faces were addressing the mannequin, <laughs> even though it was quite obvious. And I think, I think the movie meant for it to be obvious. Yes. <laughs> so, so strange, though. Like... Never ask why. This is a whole movie is dependent on the audience never asking why. And just trust the movie that they're going to be showing you something crazy and violent and gratuitous around every corner. And there was it, an, another running gag, I guess, like at their, their diner, which is this vegetarian restaurant that people are flocking to because its food's so good. <laughs> Spoiler, it's because it's not, it's human meat. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's one regular who sits at the counter, his name is Vitamin, and he introduces himself as Vitamin, and he'll say stuff that will annoy the cook, and then and the cook will beat him up, and then he just comes back, like they don't discuss the beating that he took. 
Yeah, he's the guy who projectile vomits in that one sequence, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> because we can't forget that. We have to cover everything. Um, is, I don't know if it's an 80s thing or if it's a this movie's thing, but did you notice all of the Nazi and Hitler imagery in this movie? Yeah, I mean, the, so the brother that's stronger, he's a big fan of wrestling. For whatever, I mean, wrestling is another theme that I didn't quite understand. It's a very um, 80s thing, I guess. It was where it started its rise in popularity, right? Yeah, and his his big moment, something that's important to him, is to wrestle this guy who's a Hitler. And then at the end, there is a musician who I think is a real musician, and his backup band were all dressed like Hitler. So was that a choice of the movie, or was that a coincidence, or like... I think it's possible for that to be a coincidence. Right? But, <laughs> but like, why? <laughs> it, it, again, I guess I can't... I told the listeners already, don't ask why with this movie. Um, I don't know. Like, do you feel like this deserves to be on the reanimator scale or, like, uh, one of those 80s movies that... It, it's not exactly good. The acting isn't exactly good. The movie doesn't exactly make sense, but... It definitely keeps you on your toes as a as a viewer, you know. Yeah, for me it was it was a a, a little bit. It was a tier lower than the Reanimator. Well, or two tiers lower than the Reanimator. I think the Reanimator is just legitimately a good movie that I liked right. a lot. Um, I think there was something a little try hard about this movie that for me it kept it like it. It was an interesting movie. It's a singular movie. Um, I, I mean, everybody, anybody who likes horror should watch this for sure. Uh, I don't think it's, I, it just wasn't that great. It was missing a little something right. uh, for me. So it's not essential, but it's a worthy watch, according yeah. to Mr. Rizling. I think yeah. we're we're closer to the same page. I was, I think because I had this foggy memory of it as a kid and in a weird way, it both lived up and exceeded to my memory of it. Like, I don't know what I would have made of it when I watched it in 1987 or 88 or whatever, but then it was lost to me. <laughs> like, I special ordered this package of, like, six movies of it, I think two or three of which I already owned, just so I could watch Blood Diner again. <laughs> and, I mean, maybe that made me like it more, but I... I do endorse it. I mean, it's got shit in it that you would never see in a movie today. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's just a fact. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's definitely a time capsule. And I mean, with, uh, Ben has stuff in it that we wouldn't see today. Yeah. But you don't, you're probably not losing that much by not seeing it today. This one, it's 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 singular. Yes. I mean, I, thought, I actually thought the um, ancient god that they reanimated, um, that you you said her chest mouth reminded you of the vagina. Is that unfair? Pardon? Is that unfair? Um, I, I mean, I guess in so much as mouths always kind of look like vaginas, <laughs> uh, it reminded me a lot more of that scene from John Carpenter's thing where he was um, giving the, what are those things where you say, clear, boom. Well, oh, yeah. The defibrillators, yeah. and then he does that, and the guy's chest opens up and it bites his hands off. That's right. what it really looked to me like. And there was that other scene where the rival restaurateur gets his hands cut off. So I was wondering if those might have been um, winks at John Carpenter. It could be. And the dude tries to drive home in spite of the fact that he got his hands cut off, and, and the blood was spurting in the windshield, and you're just like, what the hell am I watching? Yeah, and he was remarkably 
Cool. I mean, he was bothered by having his hands cut off, but not as much as I would have been. <laughs> uh, he wasn't all that bothered by having, you know, like a talking evil brain in a jar. It's stolen from the brothers and was blackmailing them. And um, I think he was more upset that his restaurant was losing business than he was with all of this Lovecraftian horror going on next door. Characters in Blood Tiner roll with the punches and they ask the same of their audience. <laughs> Good enough? Yeah, it's good. You think in the years to come, people will appreciate us for what we're doing here? I have a surprise for you. Oh, goody, I love surprises. One after another, they come. One after another, they check in. Pray for the day they can check out. All we have to do is give to be happy. You'll never forget, Ida. What are you doing here, girl? And you'll never forget, Vincent. as you try you'll never forget their secret garden so motel hell is from 1980 it's directed by kevin connor although if the producers had their way this would have been directed by toby hooper they kind of wanted him to do a visceral comedy version of the texas chainsaw massacre but toby hooper was of the opinion that the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre had its own sense of humor, and he was preparing to do a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was highly satirical. So that ended up passing, and it ended up being passed around like a football. Ended up with this director, Kevin Connor, who basically agreed to do it if it wasn't an exploitation sleaze gross-out movie, which is exactly how it had been sold and financed. So <laughs> it, what we ended up with was this movie that is way too dark to be funny and way too funny <laughs> to be dark, starring Rory Calhoun. Rory Calhoun is a dude who had a full career before this movie, doing dozens and dozens of cowboy movies. Nothing to prove, and he didn't need this movie. And because it was a bunch of people pulling in different directions, like, you really think that this should just be nothing but a hot mess. But... Rory Calhoun is legitimately, I think, awesome in this movie. I don't think he's phoning it in. I think he's having a gay old time. And Yeah, I would say for me, like Amanda Donahoe in The White Worm, she was all in. Absolutely. And, and it really comes through. That would makes all of the difference for me. Because like if it was like a paycheck performance and he wasn't in it and the light behind his eyes weren't there and he wasn't having fun and by that measure asking us to have fun, there would be nothing here. But there is something here. Motel Hell does have the cult crowd around it that I kind of think that the Blood Diner sort of deserves. And even though it's although completely crazy, nowhere near as crazy as Blood Diner, which, again, is saying something, because it is pretty fucking crazy. It, it is its own distinct vibe. 
A lot of people know the movie with the image of this guy wearing a pig head and holding a chainsaw. And you see that image and uh, a picture in your head forms of the type of movie that you're going to see. And that picture in your head is absolutely nothing like Motel Hell to the movie's benefit, in my opinion. But it is a very distinct meal. Again, not for everyone. It does put a guilty smile on my face, but... I blush a little bit. Uh, where, where do you start on on Motel Hell, Matthew? Uh, I really, really, really liked it. Good. Uh, <laughs> it had me very early on. Um, you know, the, the early scene where there's the family that come to this sort of farm slash hotel and they're eating this delicious beef jerky which they just only ever refer to it as meat not this beef jerky is delicious just this meat is good i was a little bit rolling my eyes like is this gonna be a surprise that they're serving human meat but then it wasn't they they tip that hand right away they're not trying to build this up to it no um but i mean there were scenes in it that were like legit upsetting and legit sickening so like one of the things that they would do is they're they're raising this human meat to serve basically like Kobe beef. Uh, you know, they, they drug people, bury them up to their necks, uh, remove their voice boxes. No, they, they sever their vocal cords. Yeah, they sever their vocal cords. But they play music. Like, for, for his, his opinion... Um, is that like he's running a slaughterhouse and he's being quite kind to the livestock and this isn't worse than what humans do to cows, which like, I can't really disagree with this. <laughs> um, and when he does kill them, uh, he, he does this thing where he shows them these hypnotic lights uh, and then hypnotizes them into thinking they're somewhere else and then um, puts nooses around their necks which is tied to a tractor and drives away so it snaps their necks so it's quick and they don't know what's happening to them now they've spent a lot of time buried up to their necks with their voice boxes removed yeah. I mean it's a living hell yeah. but from his point of view he's just being a good farmer <laughs> did you recognize one of the plants as Cliff Clavin? I sure did <laughs> always nice to see Cliff Clavin. And I was, I was like, amazed because he looks as, like, he's only ever been one age. <laughs> you know, like, when he was in Cheers, he wasn't that, that old. I mean, he was younger than we are now. But he always looked like he was, you know, 65 or something. And even when he was, like, you know, the young biker, he, he couldn't have been very deep into his 30s, but he looked like... A 60-year-old man. He's looked middle-aged since 1980. <laughs> like, like, it's just, it's incredible. He doesn't have a big thing to do with the movie, but it's just kind of fun when you see these faces in these movies. Uh, yeah, what Rory Calhoun is doing is terrible, but he's got this, aw shucks, you know, down-home kind of sweetness to how he goes about it, which is hilarious. Yeah, I, at the very end, I mean, it, the movie had such a wonderful <laughs> closing. When he's defeated, he's dying, and then his last lines are like, I'm the biggest hypocrite of them all. <laughs> I used preservatives. <laughs> and then that's it, credits. That's the thing that he can't live with. Not all the murder, not all the death. 
There are things in the movie that do echo Blood Diner in that they just ask you not to question it. This woman who gets stranded there ends up staying there and then ends up being engaged to Rory Calhoun. Like, what like what her motivation is, what's going on upstairs with her. Like, the movie doesn't ask us to even try to understand. Well, except, so she, like, at the very beginning, there's uh, a... a a motorcyclist and she's in a sidecar on the back i can't remember but you know the 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 rory calhoun and his sister is that his sister <laughs> his sister uh, wife yeah so they they set up like ambushes on the road to get different cars at different points uh and so they they that's how the movie opens with him crashing this motorbike and then he's taking this young woman home but i'm not sure if you noticed but the guy on the motorbike seemed like a rather elderly guy certainly a full generation ahead of her so yes she just had had old guy references we won't even call it like daddy fetishes although it could be but she's got a type okay i mean i just thought her whole character and I guess this is typical of the time frame of the 70s, 80s. There's just nothing about her that I could relate to or understand. I just don't understand her reaction to the world. I really don't. Uh, and again, she's so supposedly an outsider. You'd think that this place would be not comfortable and strange for her. But she just, just wherever she is, she's completely fine with it. I woke up in this strange room. I guess this is my life now. Well, you know, she, she's... Presumably some city girl. Uh, this is the first time she's ever, you know, lived the simple, pure life on the farm. And she, she just really likes it. You know, this, yeah. this clean country living. And I do agree. I mean, I'm not supposed to ask these kinds of hard questions of Motel Hell. Like, the tagline is, it takes all kind of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fritters. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, it, it does ask you to have fun and it does deliver on that. Did you feel like the movie wanted to be harder than it was with the violence and the darkness? I I don't know. The darkness hit me as quite dark. Again, like this living hell that these victims were going through. And we actually, you know, we see them planted up to their necks with the potato sacks on their heads quite a lot. I mean, yep. it's not like we see this once and then it's in the back of our head. Um, and I think the fact that the tone was kind of light and weird throughout made that even worse to me. Like it, it offset it. Um, so I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty dark as far as that went. See, I feel like they found a good middle ground. Cause I feel like if it had been really gross and if he had been, instead of snapping their necks, slitting their throats or like we heard them crying or wailing as they had their, their vocal cords cut, like, I think it would take out the <laughs> joie de vivre that's somehow being... I don't know how it's being accomplished, but it is being accomplished. There's something about this relationship with his sister that is strangely... I don't know if charming is the word, but it's... Yeah, it's something. I mean, it's not even exactly sweet because he hits her a lot. I mean, he hits her when, he, when she tries to murder our main woman. Um, out of jealousy, clearly. Out of jealousy. Uh, but then there's that scene with the, the swingers and this couple goes to the hotel and they think they're going to have an like, orgy with Farmer Vincent and his <laughs> rotund sister. <laughs> and like, 
I didn't like just everybody in that scene wasn't sexy again. I couldn't quite internalize how turned on those swingers were, why they would have been. Unsexy people need sex too. I guess. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> and then our the the younger brother who hadn't grown up with them, so he wasn't involved in the cannibalism. Um, he was like a rapist. He he almost raped the main girl in a car when they went to the the drive-in and the movie wasn't at all judgmental about it yeah neither was the female character again that's this sort of thing like she actually said she had a lovely night afterwards Mm -hmm. to him like uh, he doesn't successfully rape but he does not take no as an answer and the only reason he stops is that he's interrupted externally like it's it's clearly gross Mm And yet. <laughs> and actually, the thing that he was interrupted by was one of my favorite scenes where these uh, the, the two young women who are driving down the road and Farmer Vincent had set up a new kind of trap, which was they blocked the road with, like, <laughs> cardboard cow cutouts. Uh, and then, well, you know, one of the women got ambushed and the other one uh, made Ran a away. There, there was a long chase. Um and then she was, I think, one of the heads. So at the end, all of the people that are like sort of half brain dead, buried in the ground, they manage to dig themselves out and they kind of become this zombie army that kills the sister. And the, the woman in the car seemed like she was the ringleader of the zombie army. So like, good for her. Uh, it was weird that the zombie army only killed the sister and then they dispersed into the night. But, you know. Again, I guess we just don't ask hard questions of Motel Hell. But, uh, like, uh, the same thing, like, the the balance could have tipped over easily. The same way I talk about with the uh, violence could have darkened it too much. If they'd have gone too wacky or, like, I don't know, Airplane or Hot Shots 2 with the humor, like, that would have undone it too. Like, the balance is weirdly delicate here. (laughs) Yeah, I think tonally, I think they do a pretty good job. Um, another thing, just like a shout out that I, I wanted to put in, I don't know if it, if it will show up, um, if there's any way to really work it in without being awkward, but the Farmer Vincent in the pig mask comes out with a chainsaw and then the cop who was at first a rapist, but then he's kind of the hero at the end, bites him with a chainsaw and, you know, like, what, fully 30 years before the movie Mandy, we have our first chainsaw duel yeah and i think it was at least as good as the one in mandy yeah and i didn't didn't come to mind when i reviewed mandy it's my failure as a critic <laughs> but uh i i do have a lot of affection for uh motel hell it sort of exists in a similar place in my brain as blood diner i feel like this one's the more recognized of the two but it is absurd it's not as crazy and not as un- unhinged and maybe foaming at the mouth <laughs> as Blood Dimer, but it's not that far behind it either. So, uh, again, if this is the kind of retro 80s meal that sounds like you would get into it, definitely give it a give it a look. But um, it's not for everyone, as I keep yeah. saying. <laughs> it's, I think it's less self-indulgent than Blood Diner, because they're very similar. They're both about restaurants that serve human meat. That's right. Um, yeah, I would recommend this one about Blood Diner just because I think it's a little, the balance is a little bit nicer. Right. Better struck. Okay. 
I don't know. Is there anything else you want to say about Motel Hell, or did we cover it? <laughs> um, yeah, the, another thing that got me is the final scene where she was strapped to the, I don't know what it was, in the in the slaughterhouse. Uh, she was strapped down and, and like sliding towards the automatic saw okay. and going to cut off her head. Yeah. Uh, I thought I was pretty suspenseful, right. kind of like Lair of the White Worm. It was like an unexpected moment where I was kind of holding my breath to see what would happen. Wait, are there stakes here all of a sudden? (laughs) (laughs) This movie has everything. It's funny. One night you go to bed, and when you wake up, everything is different. acting a little peculiar. He's like a completely different person. I don't even know him anymore. Something's gotten into him. Sometimes everything glows with a different kind of light. Deep into him. What are you telling me? That we killed someone last night? Something bad. (laughs) Something slimy. What are you doing? Something very... I know something's happened to you. Very... How is that? Hungry. Mind? No, Brian. I own you. Gotta get out of here fast. Go where? You're a wreck, Brian. Leave me alone! Whenever you want to stop hurting, you come to me. Brain damage. It will turn you inside out. So we're jumping all the way to 1988. It's practically a new movie at this point. Uh, <laughs> Frank Henenlotter, who is most famous for the Basket Case series, uh, is a writer and director of Brain Damage. And, uh, geez, I don't know. I think I think that a, a well-seasoned critic might be able to pick up a subtle drug metaphor going on throughout just, this movie. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of like the... Uh phallic metaphors you know it's it's subtle but you can make a case you, you can maybe make a case for it and i mean i was about to say if this movie has a problem <laughs> but like if this movie has a problem it's just like yes it's over the top yes it's kind of tactless and yes it has absolutely no subtlety at all but like um it's unlike his previous efforts at least i guess trying to be about something <laughs> right but uh, the the way they handle this weird worm creature that attaches itself to our main character, he's strangely adorable in the way he's presented and his affectation. Like, he he's not frightening. What he does is frightening. How he eats is frightening. What he does to our main character is terrible. But he, again, has this weird labyrinth fraggle vibe to him, which is strange. It's a strange choice. And yeah. that's what this movie is full of. It's just full of strange choices. The, the choice to have this monster voiced by a velvety smooth um, radio DJ. I looked him up because his voice was quite distinctive. I, had, I didn't recognize it. But it was like the kind of guy who would have done like the nighttime smooth jazz music in a radio station. Right. Um, and it, it really reminded me of... 
it, like if David Cronenberg did Little Shop of Horrors, like this relationship he's got between this grotesque parasite that looks like a penis that attaches itself to the back of his neck and injects this this stinger into him with uh, some kind of drug, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was weird. Again, it was a weird like. Is this a comedy? Is this a horror? This one felt more like a comedy than, say, Layer of the White Worm, uh, which considered itself a comedy but wasn't funny. This one actually, it was, it had some pretty good funny moments. I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, but I think it stands out a little bit from the other ones in that, on top of being out of its mind and grotesque and crazy and excessive and over the top and full of violence and titty, it's also about something. And I think it's anchoring on that to a degree that none of the other films have tried. The thing that I wrestle with is that I, I, I don't know if it's to the film's benefit or not because of how unsubtle it is. It, it's like it almost isn't a monster movie. It is a drug movie, right? Yeah, I mean, the, so Frank Hennelotter insists that it's a monster movie. Okay. That, you know, the, the uh, like, he, he was addicted to cocaine, so he's quite conscious of the drug analogy, but he, he, for him it wasn't like this is a one-for-one analogy, that first, first this is a weird monster, but a lot of what he's going through is, is the same thing that happens to addicts. Right. Uh, the withdrawal or the fact that it's as damaging to the people around you as it is to you. And again, it's weird to call a fault on a movie for its lack of subtlety and that there's no subtlety anywhere to be found in the movie. But I think on that one spade, they could have maybe let go on the gas a little bit on that. We got it. We got it right away. Let's have some, I guess, superficial fun with the, the sort of, you know, the, the hunt as it were. I, I reviewed a movie for my guilty pleasures thing called Baby Blood, in which a, a woman has a parasite within her that needs to feed on others. And uh, it's similar in plot, but like that movie was just, I, I guess, handled as crazy as the premise was. Whereas this movie, everything's crazy, but it's strangely composed in its storytelling, which, I don't, again, it, it's hard, weird to say that it hurts the movie, but it. it it takes away from the madness. Say what you will about Basket Case. Like, it had its own strong identity. It knew what it was. And in a way that I, maybe this one doesn't as much. Or am I wrong? I, that's my one man's opinion. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't... Uh, I see where you're coming from. I don't totally agree. Like, for me, this movie had a very strong identity. Um, it, it had... It struck a consistent tone. It... It definitely had the drug allegory. I think there's probably a gay allegory as well. Well, um, not just because this thing on his neck looked exactly like a throbbing veiny, veiny penis. When he was constantly like, ditching his girlfriend for it. And when he was in that, like, you know, that seedy motel trying to get clean and in the public bath, just how much the camera was leering on that bodybuilder guy um, that was in the shower with him. Oh, right. There was that other guy that was in the toilet and the little worm jumped off his neck and sort of slithered around somewhere uh, and then eventually popped up into the bathroom stall and ate the guy's brain, um, which was, was very icky and great. Like, I mean, this, was, this, this movie is marvelously gooey. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there's, uh, there's layers. You know, it's, it's saying them some things, yeah. I guess. 
And again, the, the guy is allowed to grow as a filmmaker. There was something charming about Basket Case in that it was like grungy and exploitive and handmade and it was just okay with it. It didn't feel the need to be anything but Basket Case. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's, it just strut the strut and talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, and, you know, this one tried to teach me something. And for some reason, my, my uh, especially when it was a new movie, I kind of resented that. Like, let's just have a fun, violent monster movie. Come on, I don't need to learn from you. And because the movie was so goofy at times, it didn't. It sort of worked against it. I, I you know, I, I'm of two minds of Almer. When he's feasting on people's faces and boring holes into people's heads, like, yes. But when he's, like, taunting them and just a little head sticking out of a bucket or the sink... Then all of a sudden, like I say, it, it feels like a special effect from a kid's movie. And uh, it doesn't seem gross. It seems absurd. <laughs> well, and it doesn't help that his, he's like sort of cross-eyed. Like he looks like a... He, there's nothing about that monster that looks scary. The face. Uh, like the actual body of it, it would work fine enough. But there's something about the face. Yeah, it is very comical. Yeah. Um, the kills, I like the kills a lot when he sticks his proboscis in their heads. Um, speaking of, you mentioned the reanimator, um, the, the scenes where he's sucking out people's brains reminded me quite a lot of the movie From Beyond. Yeah. Where the monster was sucking out their pituitary glands or something, some such thing. Um, and it had, I, I really liked the body horror aspect of that. I liked how squishy it was. Yeah. Um, it started with like an elderly couple that were freaking out because they had been, it turns out, keeping this monster, Aylmer, in their bathtub and feeding it pig brains, but he'd gotten out into the apartment. Um, and at the very end, they ambush our hero. Uh, it's sort of in the, sometime in the second act, um, the old man figures out that Aylmer has attached himself to to Brian um, and then at the end in the climax they like try to get Aylmer back and when he jumps onto the woman's head and starts sucking out her brain like that was really grotesque or there's a scene where when he's going through withdrawal and he started like there's something in his ear oh, and his that ear was in, gross and then he pulls out like this clotted I don't know what it was supposed to be, but it keeps pulling and there's all this blood and goo coming It's like out. a worm or spaghetti noodle that just goes on and on and spooling out of his head. It's terrible. <laughs> that was a highlight. I agree. That was a real, like, holy shit, you guys. <laughs> um, and yeah, when he's going through withdrawal and he starts hallucinating stuff too... Uh, the movie is full of things like they show how everything glows lights when he when he's high, but also with when he's withdrawing, it becomes this weird nightmare uh, inner world. It's not as fucked up, obviously, as like Ken Russell's approach in Layer of the Right White Worm, but it is sort of another thing that we see in a lot of these movies. Uh, it's not just fucked up enough that the movie exists in a crazy place, but we see dreams and nightmare visions of these characters living in this nightmare world. <laughs> yeah, and the dreams aren't even that much worse than the real life. So there's like that scene where he goes to the club and he picks up the woman and then they, I mean, he's going so that Aylmer can eat her brain, but she thinks they're going somewhere for sex. And then she starts to give, well, she thinks she's going to give him a blowjob. And then this 
purple baby phallic monster that jumps lunges at her face yeah in in a way that just like how did this movie not get an x rating because it's just a a full-on blowjob scene only that i guess the monster is purple but from the side it just looks like this big purple disgusting penis Mm -hmm. and she's choking on it well and to answer your question a lot of these did get released in edited forms or they would be unedited in the theatrical exhibition but have to be cut down for the uh, video so the vhs you would watch of this would be different i have treated you to the uncut edition of oh, okay. yeah <laughs> so, i don't think i think the cut version wouldn't be as good no like, in a weird way it does need the ick it really does <laughs> because i mean that's kind of what it's got going for it and also in that way if you're going to read it as an analogy for addiction it's not like a Reagan era, you know, like a Nancy Reagan just say no. Like right. It's just like icky and sweaty and gross. And it's not saying like, you know, winners don't do drugs. Like it's this viscerally felt. But I mean, drugs will destroy your life and everybody you care about. Yeah. That is the message. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and that reading is fine. I mean, they... they tons of movies like that Requiem for a Dream is the same thing although I think this was a lot better at doing that than Requiem for a Dream this has more personality and rewatchability than Requiem for a Dream (laughs) and I do I go back to what I said flaws and all like I do wrestle a little bit with this one I like it I don't love it but like uh, it's got such a distinct way about it and it's just there's no way I will ever see a movie like this get made anytime soon. There's nobody with the vision to, to like, and then to someone to finance something this fucking crazy. Like we just don't see it anymore. And I don't know. I don't know if I miss it or if I should miss it. But like, give me, I guess, more movies like Brain Damage and Motel Hell. Am I insane? <laughs> no, I. I mean, I. I liked both of them a lot. Another thing that I liked about this is I like that kind of old, like New York, when it was still pretty and dangerous place. Um, you know, there's a lot of street scenes. Like before, you know, Disney came in and, and New York got all Disneyfied. But like, you know, the era of Taxi Driver, The Warriors, or, you know, that New York... Um, New York is quite featured in this movie, yeah. uh, and when he's out and about on the street, it's just it's got this just a lot of um, um, texture to it. Basket Case is very much the same way. If you've ever seen that one, it's like every every room and every building in that place is disgusting. It's not the oh, New York New York version. Yeah. Is no, there I anything else you want to say about brain damage? Um, no, I. I uh... I didn't know anything about it going in, and I, it, I the movie was well over before I had any idea what I was watching. <laughs> it's it's, it's like quick. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Like, again, that's another thing. I'm sounding like such an old man this episode, but movies are too long and don't have enough personality these days. <laughs> and uh, this movie is further evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'd say give it a watch. One man will take the truth too far. There's only one person in this house that's used to killing. It's her. No, you're wrong. She wouldn't. 
So look, yeah, one of these movies is not like the other. <laughs> one of these movies is not the same. I mean, yeah, they're, most of these movies are from the 70s and the 80s, but lest someone get the idea that every single, you know, horror movie that came out of this time frame was out of its goddamn mind, like, there were, quote, high-minded A24 elevated, quote, horror movies of the era. They just had their own distinct 80s-ness to them. Yeah, so I want to, before you go on, yes. I wanted to confront you about this movie. Okay. Why is this movie on this list? It really <laughs> doesn't belong. It's a retro horror movie? Okay. It was made in the 80s or when we were kids. Um, I don't know. Uh, a lot of these, this list were actually taken off of horror movie sets. I think that that, that might have factored into it. But you're right. Like, I, I opened up with it. I mean, it is the odd movie out on this list. This is in no way out of its mind, comparatively. It is a composed sort of Louisiana Gothic. Yeah. Uh, and, like, so it is in presentation, in vibe, in, in like, pace, character. In every way, it's just a completely different movie. And... To put it with these other movies, you're right. It's kind of not fair. It doesn't belong here. <laughs> so I apologize for that. Here's what the movie does have going for it, in my opinion. Okay. I love the setting. I've always liked, like, sort of that sort of Cajun, Louisiana-like setting. Like the Skeleton Key or, like, the Big Easy kind of, like, swampy, supernatural vibe. Yeah, very Southern Gothic, but the two sisters live in a huge house, but their family fortune is sort of deteriorated. There, you know, it begins with one of them getting dumped by her boyfriend, so it seems like they're going to become old spinsters together. <laughs> and thematically, look, they're, they're running a bed and breakfast, so we have a, a blood diner, and we have Motel Hell, and we have sisters, sisters, bed and breakfast. The other thing it has going for it is the presence of Jennifer Jason Lee, who I've always liked. And my man crush, Eric Stoltz, uh, he had recently been nominated for an Oscar for The Mask, the share. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, nobody knew what he looked like, so it didn't really give him a lot of credit. And then he got cast and fired from Back to the Future for being pretentious and for being wrong for the part. So he's licking his wounds. But the thing about Eric Stoltz is that I, I think he's a decent actor. I've always thought he was a decent actor. He just, he never clicked. He never kind of made it to that next level, despite his Oscar nomination. So I'm affectionate towards the cast, and I'm affectionate towards the vibe of the movie. And it's interesting to see where Bill Condon started. But, yeah, I mean, if that sounds a little bit academic, it's maybe because it is. What else the movie has to offer is, depending on how many of these things you've seen before, these two sisters, one who's controlling and one who's barely holding on to her sanity, living in this big gothic house, having a romantic rival and the control thing going on between them, and of course the dark, usually sexually unpleasant history towards the characters. All of this copy-paste from a dozen other movies. Yes. Yeah. The movie yeah. is not terrible, but it is not memorable. It just fucking lies there in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, I, I struggled to find good things to say about it. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think that the performance by Jennifer Jason Lee is quite good. Um, 
these might be fighting words, but I sort of feel about Eric Stoltz similar to how you feel about Emilio Estevez. Okay. <laughs> in any movie that he's in, I would rather somebody else were in it. <laughs> I, I used to like him, but then it occurred to me that he was really annoying to me. I just hate listening to him talk, and <laughs> there's some... some well, that's going to work against you in this movie. <laughs> it certainly is, but I... I don't think there's any way that this movie was going to work. Um, like one of my few notes about it is, first I wrote that it feels like a made-for-TV movie, but then I had to revise it to it feels like a made-for-TV movie by Hallmark. Like it's it's so fucking dull and by the numbers. Um, I was I was briefly for for a quick second I was really excited that it was written by Joel Cohen. No, different <laughs> it was, dude. It was the Joel Cohen that Bill Murray accidentally did Gar- the Garfield movie for. I have always been suspicious of that story. Uh, a, uh, there's no way that he couldn't have gotten out of that, and B, he did make Garfield too. Yeah. I am of the opinion that Bill Murray is largely full of shit, personally. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a huge Bill Murray fan. So in, in any case, uh, I was very, very briefly excited. Maybe that this would, you know, there'd be something weird about this, but it's it's extremely paint by numbers. And it has um, uh, what lies beneath ending. Remember? Yeah, I actually got that written too. Your favorite trope. <laughs> um. And again, I'm not necessarily against the the dead coming back to life to avenge with them. Like that's happened before again too. But set it up a little bit, movie. <laughs> well, they did sort of when when Jennifer Jason Lee tells the ghost story about one time that she was running through the swamps and she saw the dead and they were protective of her or something like that. Mm. She didn't she say something along those lines? Yeah, but. Uh, Again, why? And the other big problem is, like, the movie seems to be playing, what's the deal with the Eric Stoltz character? Is he on the level? Well, of course he's not. What 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 is the movie about if, if he's on the level? <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> like, if this guy has no ill will. He's basically the dame who shows up in the noir novel and, 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 and sets the plot going and is, you know, going to betray everybody in the third act. Like... Yeah, I mean, I... I think that they think that we will think that it's their Cajun handyman uh, who Eric Stoltz murders at one point. I think that's actually the big reveal that he's the murderer. Yeah. And then that's the guy that shows up as a ghost at the end to save Jennifer Jason Lee. Right. But, I don't know. Like, there's just... It's a paint-by-numbers movie. Like... Again, I do think that there is some craft, and I do think that the acting is fine. I do not have the problem with Eric Stoltz that you do. He makes me laugh every time in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, um, but uh, yeah, different strokes for different folks. I think what this movie really is, is just, look at these people early in their career when they didn't have any money and they didn't have any fame, and look what they did. And it's interesting if you know the background. Like I say, Eric Stoltz's career was washing up on the rocks right now. Jennifer Jason Lee's dad had just been killed on the set of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and like, uh, it was a weird time <laughs> for everybody. And, uh, I don't know. There's interesting stuff to be said around and behind the movie, but the movie itself is kind of Olympic. Like, it just... 
It's not unprofessionally executed, but I cannot find anything to get excited about here. I don't think I hate it as much as you, but I can't imagine recommending it to anyone or ever in my life watching it again. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I have very few notes because I was getting super bored. But like this movie stands out from this list. Weirdly, it might even be the most technically well-crafted, but it is so utterly joyless. There is no... Personality. Playfulness. There's even, like, this old lady that's supposed to be the comic relief because she's loud and, and, you know, unfiltered. But even that, it's like none of her beats lands. It's just, just kind of shrill. Yeah. It has no personality. Like, say what you will about even Ben. It had its personality. It had its distinctness. Everything about this movie seems borrowed from other places. It has good performances where the other movies had bad performances. The dubbing is clear and concise, unlike the other movies. The narrative and the storytelling is clear, unlike the other movies. Thoughts are well composed, but again, in in like a made-for-TV movie kind of way. Like, there's no interesting shots. It's just not enough. It's not enough that you successfully, you know, told a story that's been told a hundred times before. Bring something to it. And uh, as much as I'll defend Eric Stoltz and Jennifer Jason Lee, they aren't enough. They're trying, <laughs> but they aren't enough. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also doesn't help that. Eric Stoltz's character is a guy who's handsome and perfect. Right. So it's just like, oh, okay, well, he's going to say things very handsomely and perfectly. I don't know. what, what do, Who is, like, not who is this guy, like, this is a mystery to be solved, but, like, who is this guy? I want to feel like I have some sense of these characters. Um, Judith Ivey, who plays the older sister, too, again, she's being protective and a little bit sort of over mother figure towards her sister but I don't think we should I I just didn't like her and I think that the movie would have benefited more if we were more sympathetic to her you know you know what it reminded me of I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching it is a movie from the 80s or 90s I can't remember it's called Stella about two sisters and one of them was Jennifer Jason Lee who was like wanting to be this musical superstar and then it's a country older, thing maybe like her older sister played by mayor winningham um the, anyway there was a similar sister dynamic but in that movie which is like a mom movie i don't recommend it exactly but you could like the sister dynamic was there it felt like two sisters that had a real love-hate relationship yeah and this feels it just kind of felt like one mean sister and then one sister who's like crazy in a kind of streetcar named Desire. Damaged. Yeah. And then, oh, it's got my my least favorite trope, or one of them, which is the plot unfolds to the audience at the end when people have flashbacks about repressed memories, which really gets my goat. No, it doesn't get my goat. Involving sexual assault, obviously, because don't they always have to? Um, Yeah. That's one thing that I thought maybe that this movie could have brought that a lot of movies of this type of atmosphere do is the eroticism. Not that there isn't a a, a sex scene in the movie or anything like that, but I don't know. Maybe that would have brought the heat up in the movie a little bit. It just it there was some essential ingredients missing here. (laughs) Because I think we were meant to think that the older sister was sort of sexually repressed and it had been hurting her relationship, and. 
she was threatened by the younger sister's emerging sexuality. So I think you're right. If there if if there was a little bit more sizzle to it, just another card to play. <laughs> Not that every movie needs titty. We've been talking a lot about titties this episode. <laughs> but like, and it does have the love scene and everything like that. But I don't know. Like, uh, I think of movies... I'm sorry, say that again. They were all very gooby movies. They were, yeah. But, yeah. Maybe this movie needed more goofiness. <laughs> I don't know. It definitely did. It needed some personality. Uh, an animated talking alligator or something. I don't know. Um, don't watch Sister Sister. I mean, e- even if you're the hardest core fan of Jennifer Jason Lee or Eric Stoltz, I think this will only be a sleep aid. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about it? We've kind no, of been I short. Think, I think I've been hard on it, but also a little too easy on it. So don't watch it. There's no yeah. reason to. It's not howlingly awful. It's just so fucking bland. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Matthew Risling, thank you so much for doing these retro horrors with me. I know it was an unusual list, but uh, you you kind of went through them quickly. I, I, that tells me something about them. <laughs> I mean, so many of these movies are the kind that you could like spend a lot of time just talking about all of the weird details. Um, you know, Blood Diner. I think we we maybe spent the most time with that but there were just so many more scenes that we were like oh also remember when that crazy thing happened well i didn't mention the dude in the reagan mask coming in and killing all the topless uh cheerleaders (laughs) yeah there you go like that was just a scene (laughs) (laughs) so i think there's a really good chance of us agreeing on the bottom of the list (laughs) but the rest of the list is going to be a total crapshoot but to go through it. Uh, geez, Matt, what was your least favorite of these six movies and why? Uh, this was a tough one. Um, but in the end, I went for the interminably boring Sister, Sister. Um, you know, one of those rare movies that has nothing going for it. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, anyway, I, I apologize, it. but I think that the rest of the list made up for it, personally. Well, so, I mean, you could say that... It's like if you're eating a really sweet dessert, it can be good to have a cup of coffee. You know, like the two, the contrast is offsetting. So maybe Sister Sister like provided a baseline to kind of understand the craziness. <laughs> this is what normal is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a joyless slog. Um, next on the list was Ben, which was also, I think, slightly boring in parts, but as you said, it at least had its own personality. It had some things that it was doing. Um, There were things about it that I liked, so, you know, 
it's a respectable five, I guess. Here's, I think, the first point of disagreement is um, because the four left are the four truly bizarre movies. Yes. How are you, how are you going to rank these? Um, Blood Diner, I put um, in fourth place. It, it's it's craziness was crazy and often in a good way. Like I said, I think it thought it was funnier than I thought it was. Right. Um, so I think it could have maybe stood to rein itself in a bit. Uh, next, I put Brain Damage, which I also could have easily put much higher. I, I enjoyed watching it quite a lot. Um, but only because I liked Layer of the White Worm a little bit more. Um, it was it's a, it's a neat movie. It's a movie unlike anything that I've seen before, although I guess that's true of brain damage, but I don't know. There were, there were more scenes in Lair of the White Worm that I liked. Um, I kind of like the modern take on the folklore. Um, you know, pretty good performances. Uh, and then number one for me, it, it was, was not close. Um, I, I almost have nothing bad to say about Motel Hell. One of my first notes was I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it before because I was looking at the slashers in the 80s. But I guess there were some problems with the release. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know what it was. The rights were up in the air for a long time. It wasn't necessarily that it was out of the public domain because we wanted it to be. It just it was for a while. But now you can buy yourself a prestige edition of it if you want it. <laughs> so. Yeah. And the other bonus thing is um, there's that line from the episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns is going to shoot the puppy and then it gazes up and he says it looks like a little Rory Calhoun, which is something that I've never gotten. There you go. But now I can put a a, a face to the name. I really thought he brought it in that movie. Like, I've seen seen a lot of, like... uh, actors in the autumn of their career show up in horror movies and you can sort of see on their face that they're not really happy about it like this was not the case (laughs) and there's lots of those like pathetic declining years where they're like you know angry alcoholics who just show up for one shot so they can buy whiskey i can't believe i'm in a movie called motel fucking hell no rory calhoun came to work people well look we agreed very much on the top and bottom of our list, <laughs> but the, the middle of the list is a little bit different, but I don't know. I think that like we feel the most strongly about those. That that says something. Yeah. Um, I don't think I hate Sister Sister to the same level that you do. I will agree that it's not very exciting and that I've seen a lot of these sort of gothic thrillers before and this brings absolutely nothing new to the table. Unless you want to, you're into seeing baby-faced Eric Stoltz and Jennifer Jason Lee canoodling, there's not much to recommend here. And especially on a list that is completely insane. I will also say, even if it was on a list that wasn't, I can't imagine Sister Sister ranking particularly high on a list. So there's a case to be made that it's unfair that it's on this list, but I I really don't think it's unfair that it's at the bottom. In my own defense. Hey, look, we're still agreeing. Um, Ben is in fifth place. 
it it is you know a slapdash sequel and because it was setting up another sequel it didn't happen and it was reliant on a child performance there's a lot of things working against the movie but if you're willing to climb this uphill battle i do think there's some stuff that is charming here but compared to the other titles on the list this definitely is lower end so now we're going to start disagreeing um i am a, a fan of of brain damage it is my type of crazy movie it is completely out there but again i think with the this director uh and lauder i liked it when he was just okay with it just being a sleazy gore fest i think the the more consciously he's trying to be about drugs or about other things he kind of lost the the lovable lunacy <laughs> a little bit a little bit i i mean i I, I like Brain Damage, I like Basket Case, I think both of those movies are like 80s grungy pleasures to watch. Uh, I think it actually speaks to the qualities of the other movies on the list that it only made fourth place. I put Layer of the White Worm all the way in third place. I, I'm weird with Ken Russell, I'm not sure if I completely believe the hype, hype on him as like a technical filmmaker. But as his willingness to show us shit that's going to stick in our brain, he definitely can do that. In a weird way, I feel similarly to this as I do about Gothic in that I find it difficult to recommend and there's a lot of sloppiness to it, but it just has something that like, and, and again, the eroticism that I saw at such a young age, you know, I, I had a personal attachment to it. So that maybe helped it a little bit too, but... It is a singular piece, but it only made third place, which I think maybe will disappoint some people. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Am I overselling Blood Diner putting it in second place? Bro, probably. Probably I am. But I don't know. It's an underseen, under-discussed. Like, I was really thrilled that I could be the one that introduced you to Motel Hell. But the fact that I could introduce you to both Motel Hell and Blood Diner, I mean, you're fucking welcome, Matthew. <laughs> uh, I just, it's so crazy. Blood Diner is just so out of its mind. So scene-to-scene, -scene, gratuitous in every way. Like, Peter Jackson studied this. Like, like this is... This is totally like that manic energy of an early Peter Jackson movie. Like, I like it. It just, it's completely insane and it's okay with it. And uh, check out Blood Diner. It's, you know, maybe don't watch it with your mom. Maybe, you know, pick pick the crowd that you're going to be in when you watch it. But it is a kind of delicious piece of 80s nostalgia. But then so is Motel Hell. And I think the great thing about Motel Hell is that a lot of its attributes, I think, almost have to be accidental. There's just no reason that all of these ingredients turned out to become something so delicious. And yet, <laughs> somehow it does. And the fact that I bet you the stars and the producers, the directors and the writers probably couldn't tell you how it somehow managed to align... I don't know, it just makes the movie more special to me. So I, I had to put Motel Hell in the top spot. But to be honest, just in the interest of selling Blood Diner to the world, I had considered even putting Blood Diner up there too. So, But in the end, I think Rory Calhoun sealed the deal for me. I was utterly charmed by his craziness. So Motel Hell, number one.
Yeah, as as long as the right movie won and the right movie lost, <laughs> you know, I don't mind that we we disagreed a bit in the middle. You know, someday we may go six for six, and we we might have to just retire. Thank you, my brother. Um, you've got another list that you can start tipping away on whenever you like to. We're going to talk about some sci-fi horrors somewhere down the yeah. line. But um, it's always the goods to have you on board. Is there anything you'd like to say to the good people in the internet before we uh, shut this down? Uh, just winners don't use drugs. Winners don't use drugs. If uh, you're ever questioning drug use, check out Brain Damage. There's a subtle metaphor in that film. Like just pick up on <laughs> up movies right like even just hearing us talk about them i don't think would fully do them justice but where did the crazy go you guys where did the crazy go tell me by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com the website is rankinreview.ca i drop every other wednesday if you need something to plug into your ears in the interim, do check out the Terror Table podcast, check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, and try out the Lifetime of Hallmark. Um, this will help fill your ears with more quality movie podcast while you're waiting for R&R to get its poop in a group. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Thank you.